We're joined on the phone by Professor Tillman Ruff from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. How are you, Tillman? G'day, very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Well, MAPW was established in uh, about 1981, so we've been going for uh, 25 years. And uh, it's an organisation of health professionals, very predominantly doctors, but other health professionals are also welcome. That's uh, dedicated to research, education and advocacy around awareness of, of the terrible health consequences of, of armed conflict and really trying to, to do the work of, of prevention. Um, we're part of an international federation called International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. Um, so that's who we are. Yeah, I think that was a good sort of time. You guys won an award at that time too, didn't you? It was certainly gave an enormous boost and encouragement to, to not just um, IPPNW, but also you know lots of people working at that time at the height of the Cold War to try and diminish that... Um, that awful danger that frightened so many of us of, of, of a major nuclear confrontation between what was then the two superpowers of the US and the USSR. And I think we're probably unique in in um, an organisation of only that was only five years old being being awarded a Nobel Peace Prize, and it was specifically for for the independent sort of credible um, information that we were able to to disseminate about the real consequences of, of any use of nuclear weapons and particularly uh, working across what was then a pretty sharp Cold War divide linking Russian and American physicians and, and also many others around the world but particularly being able to work across that political barrier um, was something that, that that was really important. Yeah, good stuff. It's um, a valuable sort of thing to have is actual good sort of information on such a controversial subject. And often professional organisations can, you know, um, do that more yeah. effectively. You know, you're, you're dealing with professional colleagues that are, you know, day-to-day -day dealing with the same sort of issues and problems and illnesses that, uh, you know, that are universal. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, today we're going to, uh, I guess, explain a bit of the nature and problems with uh, depleted uranium and then get into uh, how it's being used these days and the troubles with that. So I guess um, to start out with, um, uranium, we should just explain sort of the whole the whole use of uranium and let's start with where it comes from. Underground, what sort of form does uranium take? Well, it's a very heavy metal and um, and it's present in not, not insignificant quantities um, throughout the Earth's crust, um, more in different kinds of rocks, tends to be more of it in, in granitic kind of rocks. Um, it's present in seawater, uh, so it's fairly widely dispersed in the environment and and most of us carry, well everybody carries a small small amount in the sort of tens of micrograms um, of uranium in their bodies at any time and it's, um, it's both inhaled but particularly ingested so swallowed um, and is mainly handled um, chemically through through the kidneys so it's it's um, it's largely passed in the urine so we have small quantities of it in us um, at all times it contains in its natural form it, it has three different isotopes so these are, are chemically the same they're handled by the body they react um, 
in the same way. It's just that their their mass is slightly different and their radioactive properties are different. Um, and the bulk of natural uranium that you know that's dug up in the uranium mines in Australia or anywhere else is more than 99% the isotope that's called uranium-238. The one that's um, desired for to be enriched, and that's what the sort of enrichment process is all about, to fabricate either fuel for nuclear reactors or, if it's enriched further, um, material that can be used uh, for a weapon. What they're after is the uranium-235, which in the natural uranium is less than 1%. Uh, it's usually about 0.6, 0.7%. So that's got to be enriched, and what the enrichment process does is is increase the content of the uranium-235. Um, so what's left is what's depleted uranium, um, which has about 40% less radioactivity that, than, than natural uranium. So it's, it's a bit less, but it's not substantially less. Yeah, it's um, still over half, isn't it? Yeah. And uranium-238 has a very, very, very long half-life of, um, you know, four and a half billion years. So essentially it's going to be around you know forever and a day for practical purposes um so it's a, what that means is although it's will be radioactive for a very long time the decay is very slow so that the actual intensity of the radiation that it produces is on the scale of things relatively low okay um, um, what it produces okay. are mainly are things called alpha particles which is a is a, is a heavy little particle um, which doesn't penetrate very far so it won't go through your skin um, but it's you know it's stopped by yeah, even just a, a couple of cells of, of skin thickness but the particular problem is that alpha particles are very although they only travel very short distances they, they deliver quite a high dose of radiation to to the tissues that can be around them you know just within the few a, f a few a very short distance couple of millimeters or less um, so that if it's inhaled if it's in the lung or if it's deposited in the body in the kidney or in the bones or elsewhere um, then it can deliver an internal dose of, of of radioactivity that can be can be problematic yeah I guess while we're talking radiation uh, what is radiation it's sort of associated with radioactive decay is someone correct on that one yeah that's right it's it's um, materials that are radioactive essentially are unstable um, and decay um, so that it's not just the chemical reactions um, that you know burning fuel and the chemical reactions in our bodies uh, that keep us going chemical reactions that involve the electrons around circulating around the nucleus of an atom radioactivity and radioactive processes involve the nucleus itself which is much uh, higher levels of energy and, and bigger and heavier particles um, so things that are radioactive are inherently unstable um, and decay split up break up um, into a variety of, of daughter products some of which may also be radioactive in their own right so there's often a sort of a chain of of decay for different elements um, and when they do that they often give off energy in the form of radiation so that can be particles like the alpha particles that I mentioned or beta particles which are basically just free electrons that are normally buzzing around atoms or they can be in the form of what's called gamma rays or, or other electromagnetic radiation that's in the spectrum 
that includes you know radio waves and infrared at one end and visible light that we can see in the middle ultraviolet getting up a bit more energetic and then gamma rays and x-rays higher up that we can't see but that you know can clearly damage um damage our cells yeah i guess the uh, the alpha and beta particles if they're shot out from the nucleus of the uranium atom they can rip into the electrons of nearby molecules and that's right and they they cause damage to um two important molecules like the proteins and particularly the dna in our cells um both directly as well as by producing highly reactive intermediates like peroxide ions and superoxide ions sort of very reactive chemical entities that can interfere with the structure and function of of important molecules particularly uh, key proteins and, and and especially the genetic material the dna yeah now i guess the, the dna is really critical because that sort of that involves our children fairly heavily when we try and reproduce it yeah and it involves um both organ function in terms of you know if if cells die prematurely or don't reproduce normally then then organ function can be compromised it involves uh, risks of, of of cancer if if the genes that that either suppress cancers are, are turned off or that promote cancer are turned up um and of course it can have uh, effects that can be transmissible um, to the next generation and generations beyond so yeah it's it's it, it has important um, biological consequences and it's particularly the high energy um, radiation so x-rays gamma rays uh, but also um, particularly alpha particles at close range that that uh, that can do that kind of damage yeah right and I guess um, I've read that if um, if although the alpha particles aren't going very far, if they're if they're near a uh, thing like bone marrow or something that's changing and reproducing all the time, then it's the timing of it that's sort of critical. That's true, and it's it's the location. It's you know it, it's if they're inhaled or ingested, if they're somehow internalised where they they're irradiating even just a small cluster of cells around an inhaled particle of uranium or plutonium, for example, um, you know, that, that locally can... And it really only takes, you know, one cell that could eventually trigger a cancer. And that's why there's no... Um, the, the most recent authoritative study of the, the effects of, um, of ionising radiation is a thing called BEIR7. It is now its Biological Effects of Ionising Radiation. It stands for... It's a committee... Uh, a very credible um, expert committee that that's, includes international people from various countries that's set up by the National Academy of Sciences in the US that periodically reviews what we know about the health effects of radiation. And, of course, one of the important things is that as we learn more with time, the, the estimates of the health consequence of radiation have tended to increase. Um, and certainly in the, in the last report um, that was... Um, just uh, released late last year they've again reaffirmed as they had previously that this so-called linear no threshold um, uh, approach that essentially the more radiation they have the worse it the worse it is for you um, but that there's no dose that you can say below which it's completely safe you know that it has no negative consequences um, so we you know we all get radioactivity every day of our lives from you know from from um, solar radiation from um, 
radiation that's in the ground and the water and the food we eat, um, radon gas that's released from from soil and building materials, less of an issue in Australia, but but a, but an important source of exposure in, in in many other countries. We're already immersed in that, and that you know that that clearly will account for a, a proportion of the cancers that occur and so forth. Yeah, that's so what the, the nuclear the, lobby calls the, the additional radiation. Yeah, right. Yeah, and there's no and and some of what we get, you know, is related to medical X-rays and dental X-rays and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, very small amounts are from sitting in front of uh, televisions and computer screens, mm-hmm. um, but clearly, uh, ex- any exposure above and beyond that um, is is to be minimised as much as possible. And the the dose limits that are recommended for um, for the public and and for workers from um, from man made exposures. Um, usually man-made yeah. rather than human-made. Um, Do we know if the background radiation has sort of uh, escalated, I guess, in the last hundred years since mankind's been sort of doing atmospheric testing and that sort of thing? Well, certainly our exposure uh, has increased. Um, medical procedures and x-rays um, constitute, you know, it varies from country to country and obviously from individual to individual, but on average, uh, you know, a significant proportion, uh, 10%, 20% um, at least of, of the radiation exposure that the general population suffers is from is from medical uh, exposures. Um, there's also radiation exposure that, that's resulted from nuclear weapons tests and from the emissions and accidents that occur from nuclear facilities, including power plants. Um, that you know, averaged over the whole world's population is a relatively small, small dose. Um, but you know, clearly, some people have had a lot more of more intense exposure than others, and uh, and, and it's the concern about potential catastrophic releases from from accidents and disasters or nuclear weapons that that really would pose a, you know, a, a danger on a completely different scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess. Um yeah, so we, we started off way back with the uh, the uranium being in the ground. It gets dug out, and, uh, of course, the the mining of uranium is a particularly sort of dirty process, especially in the, the top end where there's tropical weather to spread it about. Um, you got any thoughts on that? Well, of course, the major concern that we would have is that it's inherently such dangerous material um, from the point of view of its its toxicity um, and its radioactivity um, that you know our, our, the view of, of, of MAPW after pretty long and, and, and careful consideration and discussion is that you know is that really it, it, it's better generally left in the ground and that um, the potential for for it to be misused uh, in weapons um, is really so tightly meshed and inseparable um, from its use in in, um, in nuclear reactors uh, for power generation that it's really, you know, they're, they're really Siamese twins um, and that the risks um, are simply too large to, you know, to, to, to be worth taking um, from the point of view of the waste disposal, which, you know, is, is a problem essentially that we bequeath, um, you know, without their consent to countless future generations that, that we really have no long-term solution for. Yeah, I think um, the Scandinavians have been doing some fairly detailed trials and diggings and things to try and 
get rid of their waste. Do you know how that's going? I'm not in, you know, involved in detail, but certainly I understand that, that, that the Swedes uh, in particular probably have have one of the best developed um, waste disposal programs. But, you know, look, at Sweden's a country that extraordinarily impressively um, last month uh, announced a government policy of becoming oil independent, so basically being able to sustain um, the country without dependence on oil um, and without any expansion and in fact with phasing out of nuclear power Um, that's an extraordinary commitment and if you know a cold uh, smallish northern you know very high latitudes country can uh, can do that then goodness gracious me Australia can do it in spades you know if we were serious about it yeah that's amazing that certainly didn't make the news here did it by 2015, uh, there'll be oil free without any expansion of nuclear power. That was that's a that's a firm government plan in Sweden. Great stuff. Good on them. Um, yeah. So then I guess we've got transport was the next sort of thing. It's mined. I guess it's pr- processed the first time on the uh, on the site of the mine usually, and made into a thing called yellow cake, which is then distributed about the world. And I guess um, the obvious problem with that is the the accident, and of course the uh, the paranoia of the time, terrorism. If you're transporting things about, they're much more vulnerable to getting flogged, aren't they? Sure, and and um, there's no question that accidents are more likely, um, and and clearly theft and uh, is more likely during transport than at any other time. Um, I guess it's my, in terms of level of risk, that the dangers would be would be much greater with material that's highly enriched or with the nuclear waste at the other end um, than with the yellow cake. Um, you know that that's still pretty at pretty low concentration, um, and certainly couldn't be used in a in a nuclear weapon or a or a reactor as a, as as in that condition. Okay. Well, I guess um, yeah. That brings us to the next bit: the uh, the processing or enriching of the uh, the uranium or the yellow cake when it gets to its uh, destination. There, how do they actually do that? It's done via a couple of different processes that um, involve either uh, gaseous diffusion or, or or centrifuges. Those are those are the two major ways. Um, it, it, they're essentially very large-scale, you know, huge industrial uh, processes that would involve very large facilities with, you know, with high requirements for for electricity and a lot of infrastructure. And um, you know that that's not a small uh, operation. One thing that's probably worth uh, mentioning in this context is that there has been research in a variety of countries um, about simpler, less technically demanding. Uh, more compact and and more modularized uh, forms of uranium enrichment, particularly using lasers. And one particular issue that's of that's of great concern to us is that there has been research going on with laser enrichment um, at the Lucas Heights facility um, in southern Sydney, um, which originally was begun under the old Atomic Energy Commission when it was a government agency. Um, that's since been continued by by a private company called Silex Systems. Um, it's the only, to, to public knowledge, it's the only civilian-held um, nuclear technology that has the highest security classification from, from US authorities. Um, and while 
all of the, the claims from the company and the government are that this is um, this is only f f to help peaceful use of of, um, of uranium fuel. Um, potentially anything that makes it cheaper, simpler, um, easier, smaller, and less detectable um, to enrich uranium is of profound proliferation concern. Uh, and it's really totally contradictory for for this activity to be condoned in a publicly funded um, facility. Um, it's really completely inconsistent with Australia's non-proliferation objectives. If if this technology is um, is further developed and perfected, then it would would theoretically be possible in in a space the size of your average suburban garage. Um, to produce enough enriched material to produce a couple of bombs a year um, without the kind of um, massive investment and in infrastructure that would clearly be obvious and detectable um, and that, of course, is arousing so much concern in relation to Iran currently. Uh, we've got um, some pretty nasty proliferation-sensitive research going on in Sydney. Yeah, certainly do. Um, <clears throat> yeah, interesting stuff. Now, I guess the, the useful uranium is the uranium-235 that you mentioned before, but un unfortunately that's sort of less than 1%. So the rest of the, rest of the uranium, which is 238, 99% of the uranium that they get is, uh, once it's been enriched and depleted, it's called depleted uranium. That's right. The, the material that's used for power reactors has to be at least uh, enriched to 3%. Um, uranium-235, and of course... Um, Anything above 20% is potential nuclear weapons usable material. Um, highly enriched uranium can um, is generally of the order of 80 or 90% uranium-235. But the technology and the um, to enrich it to that level that's usable in weapons is exactly the same um, as the the expertise and the technology to enrich it to to 3%. And in fact, most of the work is done by enriching it. Um, you know, to, to, to relatively low levels. Um, so, hence the inseparability, you know, is, is very obvious um, in that concept. If you've got the capacity uh, to enrich uranium, then you've got the capacity to make a bomb. Yeah, yes, interesting there's, stuff. There's simply no way around that. And uh, the depleted uranium, um, is, is that just uranium, or do they, does it get any contaminants in it, or...? Oh, it'll have some other contaminants in it, but but you know it's the uranium that's that's um, that's of, of particular importance, um, and you know there's plenty of it about, and uh, it's essentially a waste material, um, so it's available in large quantity and and is relatively inexpensive. The rest of the interview is really going to concentrate on this depleted uranium and uh, some of the uses that have been found for it. Uh, uh, the military seems to be quite interested in this, particularly the US military has been using it uh, in Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kuwait. That's right. It's, it, it does have some civilian applications as well. Um, I mean, I'd prefer it didn't have, but, um, but it has been used because it's extraordinarily um, heavy and dense. It's several times denser than lead, almost double as dense as lead. So it's very, very heavy. So it has been used as ballast um, in ship keels and aircraft and so forth. Um, but its major use is, is um, for military applications, as you say. 
and that's derived from you know from its properties and it's used both for armor um, particularly for tanks and and um, and other land vehicles and also for uh, for for ammunition that's tipped with um, with du at the at the tip depleted uranium and the reason why it's so attractive um, or it's argued that it uh, provides such a military advantage that it justifies its its use is that not only is it incredibly heavy and therefore has um, high penetrating power, but but it also sort of sh- has this self-sharpening property so that it actually burrows much further and can penetrate um, armour much more efficiently than, than tungsten warheads, which are the you know the, the most com- widely used alternative um, and not only that but when it penetrates and self sharpens it also ignites it generates um, a lot of heat and it actually burns yeah um, so it, you know for and it was used with devastating effect in the you know the tank battles when the, the allied forces uh, essentially routed the um, the Iraqi army in the first Gulf War in the 1991 yeah um, oh, so that it, it's sort of like a, a cutting torch that might be used on steel or something. That's right, it, it, it essentially you know, penetrates all all armour relatively you know, very efficiently and then causes, you know, a fire within the, the vehicle so it, so, you know, it's very effective as, as a weapon. Mm. But of course what also happens is when, when it strikes is that, that there's a whole lot of depleted uranium that's dispersed um, some of which burns it, it forms very fine particles that are then deposited in and around the area um, that contaminate the soil um, and of course a lot of DU munitions you know don't hit their targets and so they end up in the ground or, or, or landing somewhere else um, and unfortunately in all of the conflicts where depleted uranium has been used which as you mentioned include um, Iraq on both both the recent wars, 91 and, and 2003, uh, but also in the Balkans, um, in Bosnia and Kosovo and Serbia and in Montenegro, and um, and almost certainly in Afghanistan as well. Um, it's, you know, there's been no attempt to clean it up. So there's both exploded and unexploded material that's still, you know, and, and, and they're not sort of tiny quantities in... in um, in the first Gulf War, you're talking about close to 300 metric tons. Um, in this most recent war in, in Iraq, you're probably also talking of somewhere between 100 and 300 metric tons. So you're not talking, you know, minor quantities of of material. And there are certainly some very important issues about uh, the residual contamination and the and the potential exposure of particularly children to that. Yeah, I guess um, particularly in Iraq, it's. Uh been used in cities and things as there's a quite a distinctive explosion pattern apparently when it's when it's used in a, a big bomb and it looks sort of like fireworks or something and uh, there's been lots of tv footage with that particular sort of fireworks going on in there yes it's certainly been quite widely used as you mentioned in, including in urban areas and of course it's it's a particular concern to, I mean, I guess for those who are at the other end of an exploding um, depleted uranium munition, you know, the chances of survival are relatively small, but but if you do survive, then there are certainly some issues of exposure, and even for the, for the other military forces that are using um, the depleted uranium munitions when they go in, you know, if... if there'll still be material that's dispersed around and and um, 
fine particulate matter that's been dispersed by the fires uh, that they'll pick up from touching things and from, from inhalation. And especially in a generally pretty dry and dusty environment like Iraq, um, where there's lots of you know war damage and, and, and war refuse around and 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 um, burnt out vehicles and so forth you know kids will play kids will collect depleted uranium fragments they'll put them in their pockets they'll take them home um, because young children tend to put their hands in their mouths a lot and because they tend to to spend more time on the ground and closer to the ground they will tend to be much more highly exposed uh, and pick up a lot more of the the dust particularly through inhalation in a dry and dusty environment that will be dispersed and you know mobilised by the wind. Um, it will enter the groundwater and 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 be taken, um, tra- traversed through the environment. And there's certainly evidence from um, from the Balkans of of groundwater contamination um, from depleted uranium munitions. So I think one of the crucial needs that that really, I mean, if you're going to use these things, and we would certainly argue that that they shouldn't be used and um, you know, to commend them, the Australian military did have um, depleted uranium munitions um, in their arsenal until the mid-80s and, and, and no longer do, and, and I think that's, that's commendable. We would certainly strongly prefer that, that, that they not be used. I think there's, there's really no justification for the additional uh, chemical and radiological toxicity. Uh, you know, war is bad enough already um, without leaving such a persistent toxic legacy but but if we're going to be used then at the very least um, the public health authorities and the government authorities in Iraq um, in the Balkans need to be provided with the information about where they've been used so that they can go and clean them up you can reduce the potential for contamination and subsequent harm very considerably by just simply removing the unexploded munitions uh, collecting you know any visible fragments um and you know, removing and and uh, and burying, if necessary, um, the most contaminated areas and material, um, and that hasn't happened. I mean, the the the, the U.S. have not provided any um, targeting information to the provisional authority on our government in Iraq, um, to my knowledge, that would allow that kind of cleanup to happen. V- very limited cleanup has occurred in the Balkans. Um, that local authorities have undertaken but the longer you leave it the harder it is to do and the more the material will, will have been dispersed in the environment buried picked up by kids etc um, mm. so and of course there's a lot that could be done to minimize the long-term hazard that that you know where where we're losing time and opportunity um and the longer we leave it the harder it'll get yeah uh what, what happens when say you do inhale the uh, the microscopic sort of particles. What what's the course that it follows through the body? Well, some of it will stay in the lung, depending, and some of it will be depending on the size of the particles and how it's, you know, whether they're sort of hard ceramic-like particles that can result from a fire that that, that are pretty inert, or whether they're smaller particles that can be mobilised um, into the bloodstream and and uh, and then um, excreted through the kidney. Um, It'll be distributed through the body, but largely to the skeleton and, and the kidneys and, and the most effective way of measuring exposure uh, to depleted uranium or uranium of any kind actually is, um, is through urine measurements, um, which have not been widely um, 
available or routinely conducted, even on the Australian service personnel who who may have been exposed. Um, but that's the best way to measure it. And there's and there's sort of two issues with uranium. One one is that as a heavy metal, um, it has a chemical toxicity, and um, so this is quite independent of its of its radioactivity, and and that toxicity is to the kidney. So it causes um, it causes kidney damage if if you get enough of it, um, which if mild is reversible, and if if it's more severe is is not reversible. Um, but of course the, the long term issues also relate to inhaled particles, particularly that lodge in the lung, and that, and as we were talking about before, that are alpha emitters. So you know emit a, a very intense radiation, very harmful, very biologically um, effective, like it's got a higher biological effect, radiation over very short distances on the surrounding cells. So if there are small particles that are deposited in the lung or in the skeleton, then you know, that that's not going to be, um, you know, that can only serve to increase uh, the risks of cancer long term. Yeah, I guess if there is a, a, a little molecule of uranium in there which emits its alpha particle off, it's then changed basically into thorium, I believe, and then another very short-lived isotope, and uh, they give off a different kind of radiation as well, do they? Yeah, it'll it'll decay. I can't remember the precise sequence, but yes, there's a there's a multiple uh, chain decay before you get down to stable stable end products. Um, but it's yeah, it's the alpha particle that that low level but very persistent um, emission. So you know this is stuff that's essentially around you know in the environment forever. Um, and while you know people argue that there is a lot of uranium in the Earth's crust and we're exposed to it all the time and our bodies have already got some in there, that and all of that's true. Um, you know we don't normally um, have intense quantities of pure uranium sitting around in forms that that can get into our bodies um, as is the case for the you know the civilian populations that um, that are now living in in the areas where that have where munitions have been used including in urban areas yeah I mean are the Iraqi people really that bad probably not um yeah now I guess uh, another recent thing that has come up is the uh the desire to sell a big, big bundle of uh, uranium to China. Do we know if, um, well, China is certainly a nuclear power-producing country. Do they? They would have a stack of depleted uranium sitting around. And Look, they will have. I, I can't actually remember whether they're one of the um, military. There are a number of other military forces apart from the United States that that use depleted uranium munitions. The United Kingdom, among them. Um, couple of countries in Asia including Thailand from memory um, I can't specifically remember about China um, but you, you know they, they clearly have um, nuclear weapons which are which are potentially far worse yeah I guess and uh, the arms race would sort of say if they don't yet they certainly might want to catch up um, well I think you know to comment on that one of the it's clear that um, the biggest incentive um, for the now probably inevitable uh, increase in Chinese nuclear weapons is uh, the United States development of, of missile defence um, in which Australia has you know, wholeheartedly supported with a pretty open-ended 25-year agreement um, for cooperation. Um, the Chinese have clearly uh, said and um, 
you know, all of the analyses that I've seen would support that that, that will be the single biggest factor that will encourage the Chinese to, uh, to develop more nuclear weapons. Um, so we could be in the, you know, in the extraordinarily um, inconsistent and uh, ridiculous situation where um, if, if war erupted across the Taiwan Straits, uh, and there's a significant possibility that that the United States becomes involved, um, and nuclear weapons were used, as has been threatened by by senior um, Chinese military figures in that situation, then it's certainly quite possible that Australia, as a, as a, as a US ally, could be um, could be targeted by by weapons that. Um, we have no way of of knowing that Australian uranium isn't wouldn't be in them. Yeah, I guess another um, another issue a bit closer to home is the uh, the, the testing and training of uh, foreign forces, particularly the US, which we have invited onto our soil many times to do training exercises with us. Um, I think the Australian government steadfastly refuses to confirm or deny whether uh, DU rounds have been used on Australian soil. That's certainly my sense too, that there hasn't really been a very clear and unequivocal um, commitment uh, towards ensuring that, you know, it's commendable that the Australian military don't have uh, depleted uranium munitions anymore, but but that they really shouldn't be um, cooperating actively with, with forces that do. I mean, you can say the... I mean, all of this applies to nuclear weapons to an even greater extent, but certainly for the very large, extraordinarily large, um, for example, talisman sabre exercises that are again um, planned to occur in North Queensland uh, next year um, on a massive scale. Um, it, it really should be um, an issue on which the government is held to account that... that um, uh, a very clear commitment that um, that the forces involved in those exercises um, would not use depleted uranium munitions and contaminate um, the Australian environment um, further would uh, would certainly seem a, an appropriate uh, ask for for government and a very reasonable and consistent um, policy. If we don't have depleted uranium ourselves. Uh, there's certainly no reason why we should uh, we should allow anybody else, in terms of military forces that we cooperate with, to um, to use DU on our soil. Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess one thing I missed when we were uh, chatting about Iraq was the uh, the rate of birth defects there. I guess being a, a physicians' organisation, you guys are probably uh, in the know there. Has it been confirmed that the use of DU and dispersion of it throughout Iraq actually causes these? Oh, horrific birth defects. Look, I have to say that the quality of, you know, the amount and the quality of, of health data coming from Iraq is unfortunately pretty limited. You know, we, we hear very concerning reports um, about increases in, in cancer incidents, especially in the south around Basra, um, and of rising numbers of birth defects. And unfortunately, there is... A very limited amount of you know good scientific information that that would really document that unequivocally, and that's you know that that's clearly been a deliberate strategy of of the um, the occupying forces uh, not to 
encourage or support or or um, facilitate in any way proper proper health evaluation of the consequences of the conflict. Still, the most um, probably the most important and credible study of of the overall health effects of uh, of the um, of the recent war was a study that was published in the Lancet last year that's been relatively controversial, but essentially it was a bunch of public health um, researchers from mainly from Johns Hopkins University in the United States who essentially got you know fairly modest support um, and went for a couple of weeks very bravely uh, with a lot of cooperation um, from Iraqis both inside and outside Iraq and did you know very extensive household surveys going house to house and interviewing people and finding out exactly um, the numbers of people who'd been injured and killed over the, the period of the conflict and you know, one has repeatedly heard from from coalition authorities that you know they're not doing body counts and they're not um, monitoring uh, the proportion. You know that what's occurring. Um, so it, it's extraordinary that it, that it's taken. You know, with all of the resources that are there and that are that are the billions of dollars that are being poured in, and um, that health and documenting the effects of the conflict which is essential in terms of mapping health needs and addressing them effectively you've basically got to know what you're dealing with um really hasn't happened and you know it it, it really smells uh, very much that um you know there's no interest in 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 any ba- adverse publicity about how extensive the effects really are so yeah, so that applies and, and we're you know, we're dealing with a health system that's been severely stressed and under-resourced. Um, and, in fact, next month we're, we're helping to, to sponsor a young Iraqi physician, Dr Ismail, who's, who's um, speaking in a number of Australian cities, who's, who's been involved in a, in a Doctors for Iraq organisation which, which provides both um, health care for, for victims of the conflict and is, and is making some attempts to, to document and publicise the consequences. Um, is, is coming to Australia in, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but there's a real dearth of information uh, about the health consequences. So, what, you know, what, one of the things that we really need in relation to depleted uranium is some good long-term population studies looking at, at the effect. But unfortunately, even though um, the World Health Organisation has requested those and um, indicated that there is some priority, they, they haven't um, been given the resources to do them. Okay, well, we're rapidly running out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to add briefly? Well, I think there's certainly been a lot of concern about um, depleted uranium within Australia uh, in terms of exposure of Australian service personnel. I think it's pretty important that um, while we do need to to care appropriately for those people, it's also important not to be too parochial and, and to get a, uh, you know, have a real perspective on this and and the people who are now living, especially the children who are much more sensitive to radiation itself and are also much more likely to be highly exposed, um, are really the ones living in an environment day to day where they're exposed to, to areas where depleted uranium munitions have exploded and burnt and been used. Um, that really ought to be the, f- the focus for our attention. Um, Depleted uranium munitions, in our view, are an unjustifiable additional um, radiological and, and toxic burden um, that really 
is not justified, that has you know very long-term and persistent um, consequences that go way beyond the duration of, of the conflict, and um, and they really shouldn't be used. Um, where they have been used, we believe that that um, the details of of where they've been used should be provided to the authorities in the countries where they have been used, and clean up uh, operations should be supported. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm glad you raised that. It certainly shouldn't be forgotten that uh, the soldiers are the ones dealing with it all the time and most, much more likely to be affected than anyone else, really. Um, yeah, how do people contact the uh, Medical Association for the Prevention of War? Probably easiest to um, to look at our website. Um, we've got an office in Melbourne and, and, um, and also in Canberra, uh, but uh, just www.mapw org.org.au um, will give you lots of information and links to um, uh, statements and information about depleted uranium. Okay, Professor Tillman Ruff, thank you very much. Pleasure.